History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 423rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're heading up to the cold north, up there to Nova Scotia and the city of Halifax. Pack your parka. Yeah, I better. <laughs> or, or a couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll have to wear like several sweatshirts, lined pants, you You'll name look it. Like the state puff man. Yeah, I'll have to go out and get some long underwear. (laughs) (laughs) This was suggested by our listener, Mika Von Vulpen, and we've got all kinds of good haunted stuff going on in Halifax, so we're looking forward to bringing it to everybody. Absolutely. Before we do that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Susan, Betty, Nushi or Nushi, I'm not sure exactly how to say that, and another name that's going to get us, Deju, and this is DJU. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Naughty. Most of us are familiar with gargoyles on buildings, which are said to ward off evil, and are also used to direct rainwater away from the building structure. But how many of you have seen gargoyles that are carved to look like naked men? These are known as the Mooning Men. They can be found at various locations in England and France. One of the most well-known locations is that of Easton-on-the-Hill in Stamford, England. Legend has it that the mason carver created these men in protest of being underpaid. All but one of these underclad gentlemen have their derrieres facing towards Peterborough Cathedral, and they're carved in such a way that the rainwater exits out of a particular orifice. Many also have unmentionable body parts on display as well. Be that as it may, the origination seems to be more urban legend than fact. Actually, there are several churches that also have mooning men that don't face Peterborough Cathedral, and typically, building churches was not paid for by the diocese, but by wealthy benefactors of the area. Interestingly, it is said that at the time of the building, many people were plagued by constipation, which may have been connected to this preoccupation. Regardless of the truth behind the origination story of these unique gargoyles, seeing naked men in a bent-over position on buildings certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 27th in 1922, the Supreme Court declared that the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote was constitutional. The amendment stated that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. 
Suffragists had worked for nearly a hundred years to get women the right to vote, and in 1916, both major political parties agreed that it was time that women have that right. The 19th Amendment was passed by Congress on June 4, 1919, and it was ratified by 36 states, so that it reached the three-fourths majority required to add an amendment to the Constitution. Millions of American women exercised that right on Election Day in 1920, thanks to the work of Alice Paul, Lucy Stone, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frances E. W. Harper, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, and Susan B. Anthony. Nova Scotia means New Scotland and is known for its coastal views, lobster, fish, blueberries, and apples. Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia, Canada, and the largest municipality in the province. Being one of the largest harbors in the world, this city has been witness to two tragic maritime accidents. There have been battles waged here, and whole groups of people were driven out when Britain settled the area. For these reasons and others, Halifax has quite a few haunted locations. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Halifax. Hunter-gatherer groups were the first to hunt and traverse the area that would become Halifax. The first known indigenous group here were the Mi'kmaq people, and their territory, which stretched from Prince Edward Island to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, was called Mi'kma'ki. The coastal area where Halifax would be established was called Chibuktuk, and this meant Great Harbor in the Mi'kmaq language. Colonel Edward Cornwallis would bring the first group of settlers from England to Chibuktuk in 1746. The British wanted to keep the French out of the area, and they planned to build a harbor, which would be the second largest in the world at the time. They changed the name of the settlement to Halifax in honor of the Earl of Halifax, who masterminded the settlement. These settlers, which numbered around 2,500, were ill-prepared, and few homes were built before the first winter. Nearly a thousand of the settlers left for Boston and other places in the colonies. Cornwallis managed to recruit New Englanders to come up, and as that population soared, Relations with the Mi'kmaq deteriorated. The Mi'kmaq felt that they were being pushed out of their land, which is exactly what was happening, and when that didn't work, Cornwallis set up a bounty on Mi'kmaq scalps, and he brought in several warships. And that started a war. This was known as Father Le Lutre's War, or the Mi'kmaq War. Cornwallis declared Halifax as the new capital of the British colony, and the Mi'kmaq said that this broke any treaties that had been previously established. The war lasted from 1749 to 1755. There were multiple skirmishes, and Halifax endured 13 raids by the Mi'kmaq and Acadians who had joined forces. When the war ended, the Acadians were driven out of Canada. The Mi'kmaq eventually signed a peace treaty in 1761. By the time the American Revolution brought loyalists flooding into Halifax, the Mi'kmaq were pretty much run out of the area. And if you haven't listened to... A couple episodes ago, we talked about two of the plantations that are in Louisiana. We discussed the Acadians more extensively in that episode. The golden age for Halifax would come in the mid-1800s. The railroad would come, as would industrialization. Around this time, a black community dubbed as Africville was established at the edge of the Bedford Basin. 
Black Nova Scotians lived here for decades, but by the 1950s, the neighborhood was in serious neglect. The city had never run water or sewage services to Africaville and even built a dump nearby. So in 1961, the residents were forced to vacate and the neighborhood was raised. Today, it is a National Historic Site. Before the sun rose on the morning of April 15, 1912, the grand unsinkable RMS Titanic sunk after sideswiping an iceberg. The collision punched holes in five of the 16 watertight compartments, causing the ship to take on more water than it was built to handle. More than 1,500 people met their final fate that morning in the icy waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. In the aftermath, rescue ships were sent to recover the bodies of the dead. C.S. McKay Bennett from Halifax, Nova Scotia, the cable ship Minia, lighthouse supply ship Montmagny, and sealing vessel Algerine. On board the C.S. McKay Bennett was embalmer John Snow. He owned a funeral parlor in Halifax, and several victims were taken there rather than to the curling rink. The building was a two-story wood and stone building on Argyle Street, and John Snow and Company Funeral Home hung on a sign outside the building. Several coffins were hoisted up to a second-floor room, one holding John Jacob Astor IV, and there they sat until burial. We'll talk more about this location later. The sinking of the Titanic was not the only maritime disaster connected to Halifax. One of the greatest maritime disasters in Canadian history took place in December of 1917. A French cargo ship named the SS Montblanc collided with a Belgian relief vessel called SS Emo. This took place between Upper Halifax Harbor and Bedford Basin in an area nicknamed the Narrows. After the vessels crashed into each other, there was a huge explosion. And when we say huge, we mean massive. This was the largest artificial explosion next to a nuclear bomb going off. Holy cow. I mean, you can imagine how much that must have rocked the city. Yeah. The Richmond district of Halifax was hit the hardest by the explosion. 9,000 people were injured and 2,000 were killed. This came to be known as the Halifax Explosion. Halifax is the cultural center of Nova Scotia and has a great history. Many of the locations in Halifax have ghost stories connected to them. Our first site is connected to a lighthouse and, interestingly, hits on our Margaret Peggy nickname topic. This place is called Peggy's Cove. Yeah, I was researching these and I'm like, oh my gosh, as if we haven't already talked enough about the nickname <laughs> Margaret and Peggy together. Here we have a site that's going to highlight that. Peggy's Cove is a quaint fishing village about 45 minutes from downtown Halifax. And it's home to Peggy's Point Lighthouse. This is one of the best known and most photographed lighthouses in Canada. The waters here are very dangerous. The place is named for Margaret, who moved to the village with her husband after a tragic accident claimed the life of their children. Margaret would walk the dangerous walks along the cove day and night as she grieved her children. One day, Margaret's husband joined her on the walk. He suddenly broke into a dance trying to cheer her up, and in his exuberance, he fell off the cliff. Margaret quickly followed him as she threw herself off the cliff and into the ocean as well. It is now said that her spirit still walks the cove. Her apparition is seen wearing a blue dress and sometimes standing on the rocks above the ocean. They also will sometimes witness her jump from the cliff and disappear. Of course, there are skeptics who point out that this is at the mouth of Margaret's Bay, so it was named Margaret's Cove and then shortened to Peggy. And this site was featured on Creepy Canada, so it's pretty well known there. Whether this story actually happened or not, we don't know. It might just be a legend, but there are people who claim to see a lady in blue here, so this is where they think she came from. Next, we have McNabb's Island, which was originally named for Cornwallis, but was later named for a man who initially bought it in 1782, Peter McNabb. 
It's the largest island at the entrance of Halifax Harbor. This made it a strategic military setting. But before that, indigenous people and fishermen made use of it. The McNabb family owned it for a long time. Over time, pieces were sold off with the final bit of land being sold in the early 1930s. In 1866, the steamship SS England, carrying 1,202 passengers from England to New York, had an outbreak of cholera and asked to dock at Halifax. The city had its own outbreak in 1834 that killed 600 people, so they told the ship to dock at McNabb Island. You ain't bringing that thing over here. No kidding. The dead were buried in two locations, Little Thrum Cap and Huguenin's Point. There were around 200 who died, and the graves at the Cap eventually washed away. Conditions on the island were horrible, with little food, and when shipments of food did arrive, only the strong got it because they could fight for it. You can imagine there were people who were living on McNabb Island at the time. So here comes this boatload of sick people and they're surrounding your houses. Yeah, and oh my goodness. They were probably like, get me out of here. So that's one of the reasons why that island quickly emptied out of people because they're like, I'm out of here. In 1797, the HMS Tribune ran aground off McNabb Island when the captain tried to proceed through the Halifax Harbor without the customary escort. The ship drove up on Thrumcap Shoal, damaging its rudder and hull. The captain would not let anyone off the ship and managed to get the ship free with some assistance. But then it just drifted helplessly because, as I said, the hull was damaged and he had no rudder. So it's rudderless floating there in the harbor. It was taking on water faster than the pumps could get it out. The ship foundered and 200 men, women and children drowned because that captain would not let anybody get off the boat. That's insane. I, I mean, there are times when you're like, yeah, the captain goes down with a ship and they're you know, good, courageous people. But this guy was a, he was an idiot from the beginning to the end. He tried to drive through something that he didn't know without anybody to tell him how to do it. And there's, it's very dangerous through there. So you need somebody to guide you. And then he won't let anybody get off the ship. Big ego. He should have just left it sitting up there on the shoal is what he should have done. Because drifting around rudderless was just crazy. This location is now called Tribune Head. There are a number of strange stories told about this island. The island is full of ruins, particularly old forts like Fort McNabb and Fort Ives. No one has lived here since the 1950s. The first strange story is just fun. Nobody gets in and out of the harbor without passing through Captain George's legs. Captain George was a former lighthouse keeper who had to have a leg amputated. This was buried near Fort Rideau on the Halifax side. When Captain George died, he was buried on McNabb Island, so now he has a leg on either side of the harbor. So you just imagine everybody goes through that harbor entrance. You're going through the captain's legs. Lovely. I love stories like that. There are tales of abandoned mines full of gold. Some believe that buried treasure was left on the island. In 1845, two men were observed near Finley Cove using a mineral rod, and they were very secretive of what they were looking for. They claimed they couldn't find what they'd been looking for and left. Later, a hole was found at the base of a cherry tree at a spot marked with five stones. People claim that they had found a treasure there. Peter McNabb Jr. claimed to see a sea serpent off of Ives Point in 1853. He said it was 20 feet long and resembled a large eel with a small head that was raised three inches off the water, and it moved with an undulating motion. It was probably an oarfish. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, just a head that's three inches off the water, that's not very far. Well, and I don't think that oarfish actually swim with their head out of the water, but who knows? Yeah, probably was just a weird log or something. That's usually what these things turn out to be. 
Hangman's Beach is also here where supposedly the British hanged enemies during the Napoleonic War, pirates and mutineers. The bodies would be left for a while to serve as a warning against criminal activity. Occasionally, ghostly hanging bodies are sometimes seen, and a former resident who drowned on the island is said to be seen as an apparition. Now on to St. Paul's Anglican Church, which is the oldest building still standing in Halifax. The church was built in 1750 and modeled after St. Peter's Church in London. The bricks were made locally and timbers were shipped from Maine. Reverend William Tuddy was the first minister. When the Halifax explosion happened, a deacon was standing in front of a window on the right side of the church, and it's said that his profile was forever etched into the glass. When people look up at the upper-level rounded window from the sidewalk, they can see a shadow behind the window. There's also a window frame from another building that got lodged into the wall during the explosion. And I believe they've left it there. That's just horrifying. It's kind of like a cannonball that goes into a building and they leave it there. Now, Kelly, this is a window, and I'm a member of a few groups on Facebook that share haunting pictures and stuff. I can't tell you how many times people post window pictures and are like, do you see the faces? Do you see this? And I'm like, to me, window pictures are as bad as orbs. Yeah, most of the time it looks like pareidolia. Yeah, I mean, you just can't trust a window picture. You've got so many reflective things going on. And when you have this old glass. Right, there's so many warpings. Some of the old glass is warped on purpose, too. Right. So I just, I always look at people and I'm like, really? I mean, I know you want to believe that you're taking a picture of a face there, but can't you see it really isn't a face? Yeah, I'm sure that some are legit, but for the most part, they're they're really just not very believable to me. Yeah, clearly this window, there's something about the glass that has made it look like a face, but uh, interesting story nonetheless. Then we have the Halifax Citadel National Historic Site. The Halifax Citadel started out as a wooden guardhouse on the hill that overlooks the harbor. This was a small redoubt and was completed in 1749. This first citadel had fallen into poor condition by 1761, and so plans were made to build a new one, but this was delayed by the Seven Years' War. The second citadel was built in 1776, and this was the first major permanent fortification. The center was a three-story octagonal blockhouse with a 14-gun battery and 72 mounted guns with multiple lines of earthen redans and a large palisade wall around it. The spot where it sat was named Citadel Hill. By 1784, the citadel was in ruins and it was decided to build a third citadel. Construction began on this in 1796. Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent and fourth son of King George III, was the commander-in-chief at Halifax. He inspired much of the design of this new citadel that was completed in 1800. This had four bastions that were surrounded by a central barracks and magazine, and there was also earthwork walls. Prince Edward also commissioned the building of the Halifax Town Clock on the eastern slope of Citadel Hill, and Kelly, this clock still works today. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's a very cool-looking clock. You can see it from down on the main street. Nice. And once again, despite any kind of attack on the Citadel, by 1825, the Citadel was in ruins, except for the powder magazine. The final Citadel was built in 1828, and this is the one that still stands today. This one was built over 28 years and was completed in 1856. This is a star-shaped fortress with armored ramparts and an internal courtyard. Portions of the hill had tunnels so that they could be packed with dynamite to blow up the fort if needed. Can you imagine packing something so that you're like, yeah, we'll blow it up if we have to? (laughs) No, but they clearly didn't want anybody else taking it over. And the way I heard it described is that they had like a central gun that was aimed specifically at the point where it would be just right to hit it. Good grief. 
Don't accidentally fire that no one. No kidding. Where's the kill switch? <laughs> <laughs> During World War I, the Canadian government considered anyone who had not become naturalized British subjects to be enemy aliens. These people were held as prisoners of war in 24 camps across Canada, and some were held at the Halifax Citadel from 1914 to 1918. These were mainly German reservists. The Halifax Citadel became a National Historic Site in 1935. Despite that, the Citadel started to fall into disrepair, especially after World War II. Downtown businesses wanted to level the hill for more parking. Can you imagine? No. I mean, that would be like in St. Augustine, them looking over at the Castilla and going, why don't we just take that thing down and level that hill off? And Crazy. Of course, in St. Augustine, they'd be leveling where they buried a bunch of people, so really not a good idea. Thankfully, this didn't happen, and the community raised funds to restore the Citadel. It was restored to its 1869 Victorian-era appearance. Today, Parks Canada runs the site, and you can tour the grounds and visit the on-site museums. And you may run into a ghost or two. Eric Nielsen of Parks Canada told CBC News in 2011 that he had never seen a ghost at the Citadel, but he had heard plenty of stories. Warrant Officer Edwards died tragically, and his heartbroken lover haunts the Citadel looking for him. Claude Valaquette, a security officer, has seen her full-bodied apparition. He describes her as wearing white and says that she has appeared quite often. The garrison prison cell is the most haunted location on the property. A soldier was murdered and his body was thrown down into a well. He now walks the grounds here. The Cavalier Building plays host to the Grey Lady. One employee saw on her monitor that there was a man in the Tides of History Theater, and there was not supposed to be anyone in there. She searched the entire theater and found no one. Hal Thompson, who was the visitor experience officer in 2011, told the Hamilton Spectator that a woman once saw a uniformed man enter a room and then vanish. She couldn't figure out how he was able to leave the room so quickly, since there was only one exit. She told Thompson about this and described the uniform. No one at the Citadel was wearing that kind of uniform. Thompson told the woman that it probably was a ghost. He said, it doesn't make any sense. There should have not been anyone there wearing that uniform and disappearing into thin air like that. So that's a fairly convincing story. There shouldn't have been anyone wearing that uniform and disappearing into thin air like that. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's unusual. Nobody should be able to disappear into thin air. <laughs> it does sound preposterous when he adds that part on. It's one thing to be like, yes, nobody should have been wearing that uniform. We only wear these kinds of uniforms. But then disappearing into thin air. Yeah, that really shouldn't be happening. <laughs> And now we have the Alexander Keith Brewery, which is named for the man who founded it. Keith immigrated from Scotland to Halifax in 1817. In 1820, he founded the brewery. In 1928, the brewery was sold to Olin Brewery and then Labatt Brewing Company. Keith's beers were made with high levels of hopping and all malt mash ingredients with no corn used. The most popular offering they have is Alexander Keith's IPA although it isn't a true IPA because this is very lightly hopped and has a lower alcohol content. It has won awards in the Golden Ale category. The brewery offers tours, and you just might run into the spirit of Alexander Keith himself. And maybe he's upset because they're calling that beer an IPA and it isn't one. Could be. Of course, we're craft beer snobs, so. But I'm like, if it's winning awards in the Golden Ale category, it definitely is not an IPA. No. People who are craft beer connoisseurs who enjoy an IPA like myself definitely know that would not be true. Would not win a Golden Ale category. Keith built a tunnel from his home to the brewery so he could check on things no matter what the weather was like. Smart man. Disembodied footsteps have been heard coming from the tunnels. 
In the hallway, the squeaking of a handcart is sometimes heard, as though a big keg of beer is being wheeled around. Keith's spirit has been seen standing at the bar several times. And a female ghost has been seen dressed in 19th century attire, and she usually disappears into a wall. Paranormal investigators have come through and caught temperature drops and had their EMF meters go off. This happened many times as they tried triggering activity by playing music. So the ghosts like a little tune or two. And then we have the Five Fishermen Restaurant, and this location started out as a school. The parishioners of St. Paul's Church of England thought that Halifax needed a school with an emphasis on both religious studies and general education for the poor of the city. Their school opened in 1818, and it was the first school in Canada to offer free education. The building has been protected as a heritage site since it was the first national school. Over time, the population outgrew the school and it moved, so the building was sold to a woman named Anna Leonowens. You might recognize that name. Ever see the movie The King and I, or read the book Anna and the King of Siam? This is that Anna. She was a former governess to the children of the King of Siam. After her adventure there, she moved to Halifax. She opened the Halifax Victorian School of Art in the building. I thought that was so cool when I saw her name come up, and I'm like, wait a minute. She went from Siam over to Halifax. Fun little fun fact. Yeah, I love those things. The art school later moved, and the building was bought by the Snow family, and things got really interesting because they opened up John Snow and Company Funeral Home. You heard us mentioning that earlier. It would be John Snow who was tasked with the recovery of the dead from the sinking of the Titanic. Many of us know the story behind the building of the Titanic and its maiden voyage that ended in tragedy, and we know what happened to Rose and Jack. <laughs> I'll never let go, Jack. <laughs> we were discussing that yesterday, and I was like, I don't know why they use that line. It'd be one thing to say, I'll never forget you, Jack, but to say, I'll never let go as you're letting go of him and he's sinking into the depths. <laughs> exactly. But very few know the story of recovering the dead. You know, Kelly, we shared a brief snippet about the tragedy and what happened, and that's been done over and over again. People have gone down and looked at the wreckage, brought back all kinds of stuff. Probably a lot of our listeners, I know I have, have done at least one of the Titanic Experience museums that are around the country. Sure. And it's amazing to see all these different artifacts and you get a little card to figure out who you were and see what happens to you at the end of the museum and stuff like that. But you never really hear much about the recovering of the dead. And this was a monumental task. Halifax had received word by 10 p.m. on April 15, 1912, that the Titanic had sunk and that there were hundreds believed dead. The White Star Line had a partner in Halifax, A.G. Jones and Company, and they asked them to charter a ship to help in recovery. This ship was the McKay Bennett, and John Snow Jr. was asked to head up the task since his family's funeral business was the largest and most successful in Nova Scotia. Snow quickly asked every undertaker and embalmer in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island to help, and they were going to need all hands on deck. A woman named Mary Dodowski Walsh was asked to help embalm the women and children, and Canon Keith O'Hind was asked to join so burials at sea could be conducted. Several tons of ice, a hundred wooden caskets, and tons of embalming material were loaded onto the McKay Bennett, and it was off. Each embalmer was given his own room on board. The ship arrived at the scene at daylight on Sunday, April 21st, and 51 bodies were immediately recovered. One of those victims was a blonde-haired two-year-old who would never be claimed or identified. The crew had been instructed to do the same thing for every body. Each was marked with a piece of canvas that had an identifying stenciled number, and these were logged in a book. The bodies were identified by scars, birthmarks, hair color, and so on, 
and any items recovered on the body were also documented. Unfortunately, people were embalmed in order of class, so the first class got embalmed first. The rest would have to wait until they arrived in Halifax. That evening, a couple dozen bodies were buried at sea, mostly crew members. They got back to work the following day and recovered another 27 bodies, one of whom was Colonel John Jacob Astor. John Snow Jr. described the bodies they brought in. Everybody had on a life belt, and bodies floated very high in the water in spite of sodden clothes and things in pockets. Apparently, people had lots of time and discipline, for some had on their pajamas, two or three skirts, two pairs of pants, two vests, two jackets, and an overcoat. In some pockets, we, the embalmers, found quantities of meat and biscuits. In most every man's pocket were found quite a bit of tobacco and matches and vials of whiskey. Many people had keys to their stateroom and lockers. There were more burials at sea that evening. And basically, they gauged that on not only your class status, but also some of the bodies were getting pretty decomposed, even though it was frozen water. By Tuesday, the captain of the McKay Bennett was sending out for more help. The embalmers were exhausted, as was the crew. An additional 87 victims had just been recovered. A ship called the Minia was prepared back in Halifax, and John Snow Sr. contacted casket manufacturers that more caskets needed to be made. He also gathered more embalming supplies. His son, Will Snow, boarded the Minia along with the Reverend H.W. Cunningham, and they left Halifax at midnight. They arrived on Friday, April 25th, and joined the McKay-Bennett in gathering more bodies. The McKay-Bennett headed back to Halifax that evening with 190 bodies on board. The Minia would stay out until Tuesday, April 30th, and then it came home too. If you think about it, there were, what, like 1,500 people that died in the water? Right. So that's not very many people that they brought back with them. The Mayflower curling rink was set up to take the bodies. And of course, that's because it was ice and they needed somewhere to put a bunch of the bodies because they hadn't been embalmed yet. Any bodies that still needed embalming were done here in canvas enclosed cubicles. Family members were brought in to identify loved ones. Many bodies were shipped home with Canada and America waiving all fees. The rest of the victims were buried at Fairview Cemetery and Baron de Hirsch Cemetery, and that was for the Jewish people. The little blonde-haired boy we mentioned earlier had his funeral furnished for free by the Snows. There were 75 officers and crew from the McKay Bennett at the funeral, and they all chipped in for his monument. It reads, Erected to the memory of an unknown child whose remains were recovered after the disaster to the Titanic, April 15, 1912. As if the Titanic disaster had not been enough, just a couple years later, the Halifax explosion occurred and the Snow Funeral Home was called again to take on a huge task with 2,000 victims. Rows and rows of coffins were lined up outside the building. After the business shut down, the building became a warehouse. In 1975, it was restored and refurbished and turned into the restaurant that it still is today, Five Fishermen Restaurant. And with the history that that building has, it's no wonder that it's apparently very haunted. Employees and guests claim nearly daily odd occurrences. Shane Rebilliard was the Five Fishermen's general manager in 2011, and he told the Hamilton Spectator that cutlery moves on its own. Disembodied voices are heard and shadowy figures have been seen. One evening, some diners were trying to send a text message while dining, and instead of the intended message... Only the word death appeared in the text. The water turns itself on all the time. A waiter was in the restaurant by himself late one night and heard the swinging doors leading into the kitchen start moving. He was sure he was alone, so he went to see if someone else had come into the restaurant, and he found no one else there. 
A server was there on another night, and as she approached the host stand, she saw a gray apparition that looked like a foggy mass, and it moved down the staircase. She decided to lock up and leave. Who could blame her? (laughs) Shocked. Another waiter was at the credit card machine ringing up a bill when he felt a tap on his shoulder. He mumbled to hang on, and then he felt another tap on his shoulder. He yelled, what, as he turned around to see that no one was behind him. He was a little cranky that day, I guess. I guess. <laughs> but then he was also like, stop being so impatient. I'm almost done. Probably was a ghost wanting to ask him where the restroom was. How rude. <laughs> Possibly. One evening, a hostess was leading a couple to their table. And when she got to the salad bar, she stopped to show them the offerings. She suddenly felt a brush across her face. It was not overtly violent feeling. But when she returned to the hostess stand, a co-worker asked what had happened to her face. There was a mark of a hand on her face as if she had been slapped. The salad bar seems to be the center of activity for some reason. Maybe that's where the embalming table was. (laughs) A worker was setting up the salad bar one day when he heard a loud crash. He set down what he was carrying and went to find out what had happened. When he looked around the corner of the bar, he found a broken glass ashtray. He picked up the pieces and stood up facing the mirror and saw the reflection of an old man walking away from where he was standing. The man was wearing a long black coat and had long gray hair, and he was tall. The worker was surprised because he was the only person who was supposed to be at the restaurant setting up. He spun around to question the man and didn't see him. He looked back at the mirror, and the man was gone from there, too. Another staff member encountered this same ghost. Several years later, an assistant manager was standing at the salad bar and talking on the phone. He saw an elderly man standing on the landing below him, looking up at him. He told the man he'd be right with him. He wrapped up his phone call and went down to meet the man and could not find him anywhere. The manager checked the doors and they were all locked, so there was no way this man could have gotten inside the restaurant. He was telling the employees about the experience and the one who had seen the older man in the mirror asked the manager to describe the man. The manager said that he was an older man with long gray hair and a long black coat. They had seen the same spirit. The captain's quarters is a private room behind the salad bar. One night after closing, a waiter heard a couple arguing loudly in the private room. He opened the door and the voices immediately stopped. There was no one in there. A few nights later, another server was checking everything and getting ready to lock up when she saw someone go into the private room. She was the only one at the restaurant, so she opened the door to see who had gone in there and she found the room empty. The only exit was the entrance and no one went past her. You'd think after all these experiences of people in the restaurant by themselves, nobody would want to be in there by themselves. Yeah, but if they're not negative entities, then I don't know. Just keeping you company is all. Yeah, I mean, the only negative thing so far has been that girl who looked like she got slapped across the face, but she didn't feel like she'd been slapped across the face. Other employees claim to have heard their names whispered. Some say that they feel cold spots and even that it feels like a spirit has passed through them. A waitress was setting up a station when she heard a tapping on the window. She looked up and saw nothing, so she went back to work. She heard the tapping again and thought it was really weird since this was a second-story window. She walked over towards the window and saw a misty gray shadow outside that window. As she got closer, it dissipated. Halifax is a beautiful maritime location. This spot has seen its share of disasters and history. Are these locations in Halifax haunted? That That is for you to to decide. decide. Well, I love anything that has to do with the history of the Titanic, so this is a very, very cool location. And Kelly, I don't know how many listeners have heard the conspiracy theories, but there are some people who claim that the Titanic was actually the Olympic. I think I've heard that as well. Basically, the theory goes the Olympic had had an accident 
And so they didn't want anybody to know that this ship really wasn't in good condition. And so they switched everything out with the Titanic. And maybe it didn't quite careen into the iceberg as hard as people thought. And it was already taking on water and having issues. And so they were trying to basically get an insurance payout because they couldn't get an insurance payout on whatever caused the initial problem that they had with the ship. Right. So this was their way of getting the insurance payout. And I don't know if they didn't think about how many people would die or what have you. And then Kelly, you and I were watching that Mysteries at the Museum. And they were talking about there's this picture that had a dark part on the outside of the Titanic that right. looked darker than the rest of the ship and that there was supposedly a coal fire that was burning on the ship from the moment it left on its maiden voyage right, I know. until it got to where it hit the iceberg and the iceberg hit on a part that had been Weakened. where that burning had been going on. Sure. And that's why it caved in so easily. Would not surprise me. We'll never know exactly what uh, caused the disaster, but it certainly killed a lot of people. And now we have a lot of ghosts. Yeah, very sad. I've actually heard that all of the Titanic experiences have ghosts in them, too, because they have all those artifacts there. I wouldn't be surprised. We'd love for you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We heard from Megan, and she said that she'd really enjoyed the Ellicott City episode, and she wanted to expand on it a little bit. She wrote, I'd love to expand on your episode. There are so many interesting things, including the original electrical building, the schoolhouse, or at least that's what I thought. It was a fountain, but nobody notices it. I'd love to do a tour of River Road and the Hilton section of Patapsco State Park. My horse, boyfriend, and I have gone to several locations, some of which others don't know about. The spring house or the black waterfall with a fire pit. Maybe just waving to the train conductor as you jump off an old demolished bridge and more. And she said, let me know if you want a tour. I'd love it. Yeah, so it's cool. It has those other places. Of course, we don't include things a lot of the time in the episodes unless they have hauntings connected to them. So this is true. We just want to thank Jurgen for his email to us, wishing us good health. And Sarah sent us a suggestion. We've been getting a lot of suggestions. We thank you guys for those. They definitely help us out. Absolutely. We want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. And we need a lot more executive producers to jump on board. So if you've ever been thinking of supporting your favorite podcast, you can do that starting at the dollar level and working up from there. Everybody who joins us in supporting the show gets at least a sticker. Absolutely. And we really could not produce this show without our executive producers. Sweet dreams. They can be found on various locations. Nope. Regardless of the truth behind the original. Nope. This was known as Father Le Lutre's rule. In 1928, the brewery was sold to Olin Brewing. 
had a brew. It sounds like you've had a few. And then we have the five fish. It's those Fs. Halifax had received word by 10 p.m. on April 15th, 1912 that the Halifax had received word by 10 p.m. on April 15th, 1912 that the I can't say that the Titanic. Too many T's. That the tight. I can't do it. It's like I'm like that the Titanic. Well, all the other T's have H's, so this one should have one too. That the Titanic. The Titanic. That the Titanic had sunk, and that they were. I can't do this sentence. <laughs> Take 1,500. <laughs> that the tight. Oh I can't. My damn tongue. Oh my word. <laughs> that the Titanic had sunk and that there were hundreds believed dead. Yay! I did it! I did it! <laughs> and then in the original notes, it says the white start line. <laughs> Well, <laughs> we're at the start line. Where are the dead bodies? This ship was the McKay McBennett. McBennett? I'm just making up names now. <laughs> McPay, McBennett, McBiff, McDonald's. <laughs> they Big brought Mac. some McDonald's on. Everybody get a Big we, Mac. <laughs> Two beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. This damn paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote this darn thing? It reads, erected to the memory of an unknown child whose remains were recovered after the disaster to the Titanic. Titanic. I'm rapping. Titanic went down. Oh my gosh, you're horrible. It reads, erected to the memory of an unknown child whose remains were recovered after the disaster to the. I cannot say freaking Titanic. You are having a hard time with that name. Problem. I think I went down on the Titanic. This is my second life. When he looked around the corner of the bar, he found a broken glass, glass ashtray. Who's having problems now? 